When God came into the world in human flesh in the person of Jesus, whose birth we've just celebrated, he came to call people to repent, that is, to turn from their self-centered ways and to return to the Creator, to live as the Creator intended. And how did he do this? Well, as we have seen in this series we've been doing on parables, Jesus told stories. Now, we might be tempted to say, well, Jesus did that because of the culture into which he was born. Unlike the Greeks, uh, who, uh, we generally think, use abstract reasoning and sort of um, verbal prose to get their ideas across, the Jews told stories. And were like, since Jesus was born of Mary and she was Jewish and was raised by Joseph, who was Jewish, Jesus did the Jewish thing and he told stories. Uh, He used word pictures and metaphors. I think we need to be very careful about this, that we, we might make the mistake of imagining that Jesus was a prisoner of the world and the culture into which he was born. That is, he had to follow the culture of the Jews, um, and so he did what he did because that's what the Jews did. In the same way, I think we might make the mistake of imagining that God decided to call himself Father based on the human institution of the family in which the male member, the father, is the head of the house. Um, And we might imagine that Jesus and then Paul after him decided that the analogy of marriage was the best way to describe the intimate relationship between God and his people. Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. I'm convinced that we have this completely backwards. We are 180 degrees wrong on this. The position of father, the responsibility of a father in a human family comes from the triune God, not the other way around. And in the triune God, we have the father, the son, and the spirit. The intimate relationship between a husband and a wife comes from the relationship that God seeks to have with his people. So, it isn't that God looked and said, oh, what, what are the humans doing down there and how can I best communicate myself to them? I know I'll call myself Father and when it comes to the church, we'll call the church the bride. No, it's the exact reverse. Since God is Father, we learn from Him. And so when we read of God's revelation of Himself in Scripture, we find that the majority of it is in terms of narrative or stories. I've told you this before in this series I believe that stories are part of what it means to be human. But the fact that children like stories um, somehow diminishes them in our, in our eyes. That when a child goes to bed, they'll say, tell me a story. They don't say, tell me some facts. You know, give me some philosophy. I want to philosophize before I go to bed. And as a result, we think that stories are childish. And this reflects the way, or it affects the way that we look at Scripture. So we look at the Old Testament, many people do, I think, as primarily source material for Sunday school lessons. It's all the stories. And then we got get to the New Testament, and, oh yeah, we have the Gospels, which are the stories of Jesus. But when you get to the epistles, then you get the real, that's the real stuff. Because that's theology, and that's philosophy. Um, I think that this is wrong. Scripture is a revelation of who God is. And God did not say, hmm, 
I wonder what the best way to reveal myself is. Uh, what are they doing down there? What are human beings? Oh, they like stories. I know. I'll tell stories. I'm convinced we like stories and we tell stories because that is the nature of God. In the same way that the, do you imagine that the Jewish culture came into being by itself, that God had no impact on it whatsoever? Um, I don't think that that's true. We might prefer theology and philosophy and ideas and theoretical discourse, formulas, principles, propositions. But in fact, when God spoke to his people, when God came in human flesh, we hear him telling stories. Oh, and by the way, even the Christmas season, and when people talk about the Christmas story, oftentimes we're thinking more for children than for us as adults, that we prefer uh, the Passion Week, Holy Week, and, and Easter, and Resurrection, and things like that, even though that is, in fact, uh, put in the form of story. How are we to understand the parables that Jesus told? What is their purpose? The purpose of the, of the parables was to change people's behavior, to make them disciples. And we've talked about this. What is the best way to do that? If you want to change someone's behavior, if you want someone to become a disciple, a disciple of Jesus Christ, what is the best way to do that? Well, I think you have one of two options. The first is you tell them what to do. That is to say, if you are going to be a good person, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, whatever you want a person to be, these are the rules you must follow. And if you follow these rules, then, in fact, you will be a disciple, you'll be a good person. Or you can do what Jesus did, and rather than giving rules, you tell them stories. And what is the purpose of the story? To tell them who God is. See, God made you, you're made in God's image, and if you want to know who you should be, then you need to know who God is and the way God is, his nature, his character. And so the focus of these parables is not, okay, this is what you need to do. The focus of the parables is, this is who God is. And because this is who God is, then you are supposed to live a particular way. Unfortunately, this is not how the parables are generally thought of or taught. Usually people think of the parables as sort of timeless stories, universal truths, where Jesus is telling us how to be nice people. Um, and th as a result, we give the parables wrong names. I'm convinced of it. We saw three uh, before Christmas, the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, the parable of the sheep and the goats. So we're all thinking about us, about people, when in fact the primary focus of the parables is who God is. Today we will look at a parable that is generally known as the parable of the tenants, or the wicked tenants, if you wish. In reality, the parable seeks to reveal to us the nature of God and the character of God. You can listen or follow along as I read, beginning in verse number 9, here in Luke Chapter 20. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him, so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant 
but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He still sent, or he sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What will, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, may this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. So, let's look at this parable. And as we've done in this series, we must begin with the context. Um, The context of a parable is important because Jesus didn't speak these parables in, in thin air. They are not universal stories. They are stories that are told to a particular group of people at a particular time in a particular culture. The context, first of all, is in Luke's Gospel. And in Luke chapter 19, the chapter that comes right before this, we have the event we know as Palm Sunday, in which Jesus comes into Jerusalem. At the end of the chapter, we read of Jesus cleansing the temple. And so if you'll turn back just to Luke 19... In the last few verses there, beginning in verse 45, Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then if you look at verse 47, Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. So this is the setting. Jesus has come into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He's in the temple teaching. And the religious leaders are very upset, but they can't do anything because the people hang on his words. They're listening to everything he has to say. The religious leaders want to do something about him because he has cut into their bottom line. They have allowed vendors to come into the temple area and... The Sadducees got a cut of that, and now Jesus has driven out the vendors, and the Sadducees aren't going to see any money at all, so they're not happy. So when chapter 20 opens, the issue that comes up is the authority of Jesus. What gives him the authority to do the things that he is doing? Um, I think for us culturally, this this might be problematic, um, because as Americans, we think we can pretty much do whatever we want. So the issue of authority, I think, is, is a non-issue. But for the Jews, this is very important. You come into God's temple and you do these things and you say these things, what gives you the right? So if you look at chapter 20, this is the passage that comes right before the parable, beginning in verse 1. One day he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel. The chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me. John's baptism. 
Was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, We don't know where it was from. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. It's brilliant. Jesus has painted his opponents into a corner. This is great. I mean, it's time to go in for the kill, if you wish. And what does Jesus do? He tells a story. If you look at verse number 9, it opens, He went on to tell the people this parable. As I was preparing for this, one of the pictures that came to mind is from the recent movie Lincoln. that came out last year. Um, in which he and others are in a room, they're waiting to hear about a particular battle, how it's going to go, and they're quite concerned about it, and the, their nerves are sort of somewhat frayed. And Lincoln begins to tell a story, and one of the cabinet members says, I can't believe it, he's going to tell a story, he's, I can't take this, and he leaves the room. And then Lincoln proceeds to tell a story. Now the context isn't, context isn't exactly the same, but here Jesus has, he has the religious leaders where he wants them. And instead of giving a reasoned argument, you know, you guys, listen, you won't accept John's baptism, you won't reject it, you won't accept it. Instead he tells them a story. He tells them a parable. Now this parable is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in each of the three synoptic Gospels, as they're known, it's told in the same place. That is, after Palm Sunday, when Jesus is questioned about his authority. Okay. There are differences. I think what is most striking is here in Luke, uh, beginning in verse number 9, Jesus addresses the people. He tells the parable to the people. Um, in Matthew and Mark, it's, it's less than clear, but it seems that there he's talking more to the religious leaders. Okay, that's the scriptural context. What is the historical uh, context? What Jesus describes here was perfectly normal. People could relate to this. The practice of somebody owning land, planting a vineyard, and then leaving and having tenants take care of it, and they would split, and they would have to decide what the tenants got and what the owner got. Uh, This was very common in the ancient world. And there are even arguments about when you prune the, the vines, who gets the twigs? I mean, do the tenants get it or does it go to the owner? This was very common practice, as was violence. What Jesus describes here, you know, in other parables, he describes things that just don't seem realistic. A man owed his master 10,000 talents. Well, that's not, that's, that's a ridiculous amount. That's hyperbole. But here what Jesus describes is something that his his listeners could relate to. And I would say of all the parables, this is perhaps the most transparent. Because at the end, the religious leaders, they get it. They know who he's talking about. He's told a story, but they know what's being said. As I've said before, parables and reality are not are not connected by real signs. We shouldn't say, oh, what Jesus describes in a parable was in fact something that happened in real life. I remember being told as a child by someone that all the parables were completely true because Jesus would never tell a fictional story. Which I, I think that really misses the point of what's going on. 
what Jesus describes here, his listeners got. The language for leasing property, for developing the vineyard, the conflict between the owner and the tenants, uh, the rejection of emissaries. We find all of these in ancient sources. We find these in, in judicial records that people would go to the judge and say, listen, I lease this out to people and they're not paying me what they owe me. This was very common and so the people got it. Let's look at the parable. Like most parables, it is short and it is somewhat thin. We're given bare details. Many things are not mentioned. For example, how long was the owner gone? We are not told. Just a long time. What were the arrangements made with the tenants? What percentage did he get? What percentage did they get? We're not told that either. Had the owner been there previously, previous to this crisis? We are not told. Why did he not go himself? Why is he sending servants and then finally his son? Again, we are not told. This is what we are told. A man planted a vineyard, which, if you think about it, it takes some time to develop in order to make a profit. The owner goes away for a long time. How long that is, we're not told. And at one particular harvest, he sends a servant to get his share. Again, we don't know the arrangement. We simply know that he's gone to get his share. And the tenants reject the ownership of the owner. They beat the servant and send him away with nothing. The owner sends another servant, and this one is treated shamefully. He's beaten, he's treated shamefully, and sent away with nothing. He sends a third servant, and they reject his claim. They wound the servant, and they throw him out. A crisis has certainly arisen. What is going to happen? Something has to give here. He's the owner, they're the tenants, but they refuse to acknowledge his ownership. So he decides to send his son. Why the strategy? Why would he do this? Well, he describes his son as my son whom I love. He thinks perhaps they will respect him. A servant, after all, is hired help. Son, that's blood. He is blood of my blood, flesh of my flesh. This is my son. They'll listen to him even though I'm not able to go. When the tenants see the son coming, they have a discussion. And they come up with a solution. Their solution is, let us kill him, and then we will inherit the vineyard. So they throw him out of the vineyard and they kill him. And Jesus asks the people listening, what do you think the owner is going to do? He answers his own question. That is, he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to another. The people heard this. They said, may this never be. Now, one of the things that has always bothered me about this parable is the reasoning of the tenants. How did they think that if they kill the son of the owner, the heir who's supposed to inherit, that they will become the heirs, that they will inherit um, the vineyard? The inheritance will be ours, we read in verse number 14. Well, I think we would put the word inherit or inheritance in quotation marks. And this isn't unheard of. In 1 Kings chapter 21, we are told the story of a man named Naboth who lived in Israel, in the northern part of Israel near Samaria. He had a vineyard in Jezreel, and it was right next to the land or the property of the king, King Ahab. Ahab liked the vineyard, and so he said to Naboth, sell me the vineyard, or 
give it to me and I'll give you something better because I want to have a vegetable garden right next to the palace. Well, Naboth said, I can't do this. This land has been in my family all the way back since Joshua divided up the land. You can't sell property. It belongs to my family. Well, we are told that Ahab went back to his house and got in bed and was pouting, sulking, wouldn't eat. And his wife shows up, his wife you've heard of, Jezebel. She's like, what's up? Why, why are you pouting? It's like, Naboth won't sell me his vineyard. She's like, listen, you're the king. You can do what you want. She arranges for two men to publicly accuse Naboth of cursing God and cursing the king. So Naboth is stoned to death. He is publicly executed, which means now Ahab can take over the vineyard. But the word that is used is inherit, that Ahab inherited Naboth's vineyard. Well, that's a euphemism for he stole it. And as Jesus tells this parable, I think the people listening, they understand exactly what is being said when the tenants say, we are going to, you know, we will take the inheritance. One more thing before we move on. Um, some people have raised the possibilities, and again, we're not, we're not completely clear on what the law was, but perhaps the tenants thought that they could take on the status of squatters. And a squatter, if they stay on property long enough without the owner showing up, they can then say legally it is theirs. So if they kill the son, drive off all the servants, and the owner never shows up, they can say, it's got to be ours because the owner never came to claim his property. Whatever the thinking was, they murder the son of the owner. So what does this all mean? What does this parable mean? Well, interestingly enough, I think those listening to Jesus when he first spoke this parable needed very little explanation. If you read other parables, Jesus will tell a parable and then at night when he's with the disciples, they're like, okay, what did you mean by that? What does that parable mean? I don't think anybody asked what this parable meant. They knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. In the Old Testament, which was a scripture for the people listening to Jesus, we find time and time again the mention made of Israel as a vineyard and God as the one who planted the vineyard. In Psalm 80, verses 8 and 9, you brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it and it took root and filled the land. So Israel is a vine God rescues that vine out of Egypt, the Exodus. He takes him into the promised land and he plants it and it fills the land. Any good Jew would know this. Um, in Isaiah chapter 5, we have a parable. It's known as the parable of the vineyard. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug up and cleared it of stones and planted it with choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. And at the end of the parable, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. So, the Jews listening to Jesus that day, they understood 
vineyard owner. Okay, you're talking about Israel. You're talking about God's people. And God is, in fact, the owner. By the way, in both Psalm 80 and in Isaiah 5, the vineyard did not turn out as it was supposed to. It did not produce good grapes. And therefore, the, the parable in Isaiah 5 is that God would tear down the walls and let wild animals come in and wreak havoc in the vineyard. And that's, in fact, what would happen to Israel, first with Assyria and then with Babylon later on. In Jesus' parable, the people get it. The vineyard is Israel. The owner is God. What about the servants? Well, the servants are the prophets that God had sent to his people time and time again to tell them to repent, to return to God. And many of these prophets were treated shamefully. Jeremiah was arrested and thrown into a cistern, into a wall, uh, a well uh, filled with mud, and he was left there to die. He did not die. He was rescued, but he was put there to die. Of Zechariah, the prophet who was stoned in the temple courtyard, In front of the temple, he was stoned to death by the people of God. Jesus had mentioned this earlier in Luke chapter 13. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So the listeners get this until we get to verse number 14. I think up to verse number 13, they're like, you're right. And in fact, I can easily imagine that as Jesus is speaking, people are looking at the ground. There's a certain sense of shame that God has done all these wonderful things for his people and they have abused the servants that he sent to them. This they get. But who is the son? The servants they know. But who is the son? Well, for us, the answer is clear. But not so for his listeners. However, I think they were beginning to understand who Jesus claimed to be, though indirectly. It is clear in his trial, which is at the end of chapter 22, um, I think it became clear that they understood that Jesus was claiming that he was the Son of God. By the way, a side note, you'll notice that the listeners say, may this never be. We're not sure what this means. Do, do they mean, oh, this is a terrible story, don't let the owner give the vineyard to someone else? Or do they mean the son should not have been murdered by these people? It simply is not clear. But we do read in the next verse, in verse 17, Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written, The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Jesus then expands on who the Son is and what will happen to those who reject him. Jesus does so by referring to Psalm 118. Again, this is the scripture. They know the scriptures, and so when he quotes from Psalm 118, they know exactly what he's quoting from. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The son is the one who was rejected. He is the one that the people have turned against. But he becomes the cornerstone, the capstone. I'm not an architect or a construction person, but in the ancient world, they used to have a cornerstone or a capstone, 
And that was either the first piece put in or the last piece. Usually the first piece. And the building was put, that became the foundation. It's what held things together. But it also established the lines. The lines of the building will be based on this stone. Well, there is actually a legend that is told that when Solomon's temple was built, there was a particular stone that the builders rejected. And when they got finished with the temple, they still had one piece missing. And the piece that they were had rejected, they then put in, and that became the capstone. The people have rejected him. They will reject him within hours. It is amazing to me that Jesus can tell this parable about the son being murdered. Well, within three days, perhaps two days, he will be murdered himself. He will be taken outside of the city in the same way that the son is taken outside the vineyard, and there he will be put to death. The people reject him, but God raises him up. If you want to look at this later, Psalm 118 talks about the stone the builders rejected. The very next verse says, The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. God will raise him from the dead. So this is what's going to happen to the son. He's going to be rejected by people, but accepted by the Father. What about the people who reject him? Jesus says in verse number 18, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. What does this mean? I think the second part is much easier than the first part. That is, if you reject Jesus, this capstone, if you reject him and he falls on you in judgment, you will be crushed. And I think the people got that part because the religious leaders are looking for a way to arrest him. They want to kill him. They hate what he is saying about them. Um, But what about the first part? That if you fall on him, you'll be broken. I can understand that if you reject Jesus in judgment, you will be crushed, you will be destroyed. But if I fall on Jesus, what does that mean? I think, simply put, it is that we reject our own self-sufficiency and we put ourselves on Christ. And when we do that, then any self-sufficiency is broken away. It's taken away. We no longer trust that we can take care of ourselves, that we can save ourselves. We throw ourselves on the Lord Jesus Christ. So either we can fall on Christ and trust him, or we can stand self-assured until the end of time, and then at judgment we will be judged. It's been my contention as we've gone through this series that the parables are a revelation of who God is. So what does this parable tell us about God? What does it tell us about God? Well, like many of the parables, I think we we come away with almost a sour taste in our mouth that, that God is someone who's angry, that God is someone who's going to kill people, that he's going to crush people. I don't think that that's the primary focus of the parable. If you go back to Luke 19, I I deliberately did not read this, but I want you to look at verses 41 through 44. As he, that is Jesus, approached Jerusalem and saw it, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on the day 
what would bring you peace. On this day, what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Again, I think we might focus on the last two verses there, speaking of judgment. But we need to go back to see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. When I read this parable, what I hear is compassion and patience. I mean, stop and think a minute. If you're the owner in this parable, if somehow we could construct a parable and you're the owner, are you going to send three servants? I mean, I'm thinking you reject the first servant. Okay, I'm bringing in the police. I'm bringing in the authorities. I'm not going to send someone and then you beat him and treat him shamefully. Like, oh, okay, I'll do it again. And then, yes, I'll send my son. No, this owner is very patient. uh, At least more patient than I would be. And I think what Jesus, who is, again, within hours of his own death, in which he will be murdered by his people. Even at this point, he is holding out to them patience and grace and saying, basically, it doesn't have to be this way. Why would you reject the owner? Why would you reject the owner's ownership? This is God's world. For Israel, they were God's people. Why would they not acknowledge God as God? Here God sends his son. He sent prophets that they've they've treated shamefully. Now he sends his son. Here is your chance. Here is the opportunity to make things right. It doesn't have to end in judgment. But they reject the son in the parable, and in a few days this will happen in the life of Jesus. I find it amazing that Jesus would weep over Jerusalem, knowing what the people of Jerusalem would do to him in a few days. But this parable tells us of a God of grace, of great grace. Yet, if if you say, well, this parable is actually to tell us what to do, then you could make this a parable about the sinfulness of people how wretched people are, that they are given the opportunity and what do they do? They abuse it. They abuse it. They abuse it. And then they even commit murder. This could be a great parable about sin, if you wanted it to be. I prefer to see it as a parable of God's grace. That the owner, uh, with great patience, gave these people opportunity after opportunity And finally, there will come judgment. I have been surprised as I've gone through the parables with you how that many of them I have in the past read as parables of judgment. Bad things are going to happen to you. When in fact, if it's about the character of God, we see how patient God is with us, how patient God is with people, and how he calls us to turn to him. Let's pray together.
Our Father, indeed, as we look at Scripture, we see how patient you are, how gracious you are, how giving you are. And yet, even as we confessed earlier, we still tend to be self-absorbed. It's about consumption and convenience. It's about being the center of things. If we are to learn what it means to be your people and how we are supposed to live, may we come to see who you are as you are revealed in Scripture, a God of great grace a God who is the owner of all things and has given us, who has shared with us, put into our care the things of this life. May we learn from your word, from this parable. May we not spurn the work of your spirit in our lives. May we not make life about us, but come to see that you are the center of all things. I thank you that we've been able to gather today, that you've called us together to worship you on this last Sunday of 2013. We thank you for your graciousness, for your faithfulness, and your great patience with us. And as we look forward to a new year, we don't know what it will bring, but you do. You're already there. You've prepared the way for us. May we trust you. May our confidence be in you and not ourselves. And above all, may we know that you love us and care for us. I thank you that we could meet together. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please? And we'll sing the doxology together.